0: Thank you, Dr. Swain, Luke, Voices of Midwestern. That was beautiful. Whoever is singing bass there, nice work. Thank you, Dr. Allen, for the opportunity and the privilege to preach in chapel this morning. I will be concluding our James series. So if you have your Bible, if you would, turn to James chapter 5 in verse 7, and we're going to look at verses 7 through 20 this morning. James chapter 5, verses 7 through twenty. As you're finding your place there, as we get ready to read the text, I just want to point out that you'll notice as we're reading this text that James has already addressed many of the subjects that we're going to read about in this text. So he's returning to themes that he's already discussed, like patience and suffering. He opens by saying, uh, count it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that those trials produce patience. The testing of your faith produces patience. So patience in trials and suffering has been addressed. He's talked about speech already, especially in chapter 3. He's talked about prayer, the importance of prayer, the beginning of chapter 4. And he's talked about the danger of sin in numerous places, chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 5. And so here he returns to these subjects, but he's doing so in the context of trials and adversity and difficulty. And he's showing us what it looks like to be a Christian to To be a faithful christian in difficult times and it's an important message for us because here's the reality everybody in this room is going to experience difficulty in life you're going to experience suffering and sickness and sin and sorrow and pain and so this is a natural result of living in a fallen world and this is a necessary message to help us live faithfully in a fallen world and even those of us, like myself, I consider myself to have lived a relatively, uh, relatively sheltered or protected life. The Lord has been uh, very kind uh, to me and to my family, and yet e- even I have not been exempt from pain. Um, one of the things that, that has marked me uh, quite literally is the fact that I'm missing a finger. Uh, I'm missing my left ring finger, and I've gotten used to it, so now it's not a big deal. Uh, I worked with students for a long time, and so I had to get used to the jokes You know, I made you know, I couldn't say 10 commandments, it was a nine commandments. I can't count to three on this hand. Um, I would walk up behind students and say, guess who? You know, and they could still see. So uh, I've made light of that, but I'll be honest with you. When that first happened, it was very, very discouraging. That was a tough season of my life. I remember thinking on the way to the hospital, is my wife still going to want to hold my hand? Yeah, you know, I'm in my mid-20s and wondering, how's this gonna affect my preaching? How's this going to affect my typing? The S key is a long way away, friends, with this finger. So uh, I- I've gotten used to it, but in that season, it was difficult. Several years later, my mom went, Went through a, a very uh, tragic accident, uh, had burns on a third degree burns on a large portion of her body, spent several months in the hospital, um, multiple operations on her. And so I haven't been immune to it, and you probably haven't either. Many of you have stories of suffering and sickness and sorrow and pain. And if you don't right now, if you live long enough, you will. And here, James encourages us. He shows us what to do when life gets hard, when others oppose us, when we struggle internally, what do we do? So if you have your Bibles, look with me, James chapter 5, verse 7. "'Therefore, be patient, brethren, "'until the coming of the Lord. "'The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, "'being patient about it "'until it gets the early and late rains. "'You, too, be patient. "'Strengthen your hearts, "'for the coming of the Lord is near.'" Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endure. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, Or with any oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months then he prayed again and the sky poured rain and the earth produced its fruit My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins." In his conclusion, James provides instructions for Christians facing various challenges. He talks about suffering here at the beginning. He talks about dishonesty. He talks about sickness. He talks about sin. He talks about wayward believers, and he gives instructions. There's a litany of imperatives in this passage. James likes imperatives. He uses imperatives, but I think the the imperatives in this text can be condensed into four summary commands. The first command is to be patient. Look again at verse number seven. He says, therefore, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. Now, the therefore connects it to the previous section. Dr. Matson covered that last week about the abuse of the poor by the rich. The rich were taking advantage of the poor, withholding wages from them, and James tells the wicked rich that God is going to judge them, that God is is coming to judge them, wail, mourn, judgment is coming. And in light of the coming judgment, James tells these believers that they can be patient. God will step in, God will redress the wrongs that have been committed against them, and so these believers are called to live patiently. This is a difficult thing for us to do, a difficult thing for these readers to do, to be patient in the face of adversity and in the face of opposition. Our natural disposition, our natural tendency when others rise against us, when others abuse us, when they speak ill of us, our natural disposition is to react, to retaliate, to get even or uh, growing up for me to get ahead if my brother or sister mess with me. That's our natural response or disposition. But what James says is don't seek vengeance. Don't retaliate. Don't take matters into your own hands. Be patient. The Lord is coming. Trust him to make things right. Resign to endure suffering and trust that God will defend you. And those of you who are in ministry or preparing for ministry, this is a, this is an, a necessary word because as you serve the church and as you love people, there will be people who wrong you a church member who lies about you or your family, a deacon or a church leader who disagrees with your decision and grumbles to other people, a visitor who criticizes your preaching or your leadership and the temptation is to fly into your own rescue, to rise to your own defense. And James says, brothers, be patient. Wait for the coming of the Lord. He'll vindicate you. Don't retaliate, don't take things into your own hands. And to illustrate this, he he goes to the the field of agriculture and uses a farming metaphor. He says, consider the farmer. The farmer plants the seed in the soil, but he has to wait for the rain to come. He can't make the, the crop grow any faster. He can't make the ground yield its fruit any faster. He has to be patient and wait for the early and late rains. Then he says in verse number eight, you too be patient but this is an idleness. He says, be patient, but he also says to strengthen your hearts. It's what one commentator called militant patience, a resignation to be strong, to fortify your heart, to dig into trusting Jesus and to follow him in spite of adversity. And so we are called to be patient and to endure suffering. And we can do this because Christ is returning and will come to our defense. He says twice, in in verse number eight, he says, be patient when until the coming of the Lord. Then in verse number eight, he says, you too be patient, strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. So verse seven and verse eight, talk about the coming of the Lord. First, it's a fact, be patient until he comes. Then the second time it's meant to talk about the imminence of Christ's return. This return is near. This is an encouragement because their suffering is not going to last forever. Yes, they're being opposed. Yes, they're going through difficult circumstances, but that difficulty won't last forever. Christ is coming in light of his return, in light of the coming vindication. These believers are called to endure. We can endure the difficulties and trials of life because Christ is going to return and he's gonna make everything right. He'll wipe away every tear so we can trust him and await his return. But James says this coming is near and some would say, well, if it was near, and it still hasn't happened yet, was it really near? Did James and the other New Testament authors miss this? And the short answer is no, the nearness indicates the imminent return of Christ. And from Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension until his return, we're living in the last days, Christ could return at any moment. And in that sense, his return is near. And so God doesn't always work on the same timetable or the same time scales that we do a good example of this is uh, cs lewis's uh, the the line the witch in the wardrobe in the chronicles of narnia series when when uh, peter and edmund and susan and lucy walk into the wardrobe they enter a different world they meet aslan they, they defeat the white witch, they become kings and queens, they live a full life, and yet at the end of the line, the witch in the wardrobe, they follow the white stag back out of the wardrobe, they return to England, which they've forgotten about, and in England, they're still children, an entire lifetime in the wardrobe, and yet outside of it, no time has passed, two different time scales, and so from God's standpoint, from his view, his return is imminent. He doesn't, ex- he doesn't see time the same way that we see time. His return truly is near. And so we're called to wait patiently for his near return. Now, for many of us, this command to be patient is a challenge. Maybe I'm alone in struggling with patience, but I, I struggle to be patient. When the internet is slow, we get frustrated, we're ready for it to load whatever we're trying to watch. When we're standing in line trying to check out and the line is moving slow, we're impatient. I have a talent, really it's a gift of picking the slowest moving line. I don't know if anybody else has that or not, but I'll get in a line and inevitably, the worker is slow, the item is missing a tag, the lady in front of me has 10,000 coupons and I'm ready to go and she's just moving too slow. Here's the worst part. I will pick a faster moving line. The fast line becomes a slow line and the slow line becomes a fast line. I told you it's, it's incredible, but, but I'm, I'm impatient. Some of you here are, are impatient. You can't wait for Friday for the new episode of the Mandalorian to release. Okay, that, that's for you Star Wars nerds, live long and prosper, whatever you do. uh, <laughs> Just trying to relate to the youths. But But here's my point. We can be impatient. And James says, listen, be patient. Wait for the coming of the Lord. Now, one of the signs that we're not being patient is grumbling and complaining, which is what James talks about next. He says in verse number nine, do not complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. And so when things get difficult, One of the temptations for us is to grumble and to complain. We begin to grumble and complain about others, and those close to us often take the brunt of our grumbling and complaining. And we had a rough day at work. Things don't go the way that we want them to. It's been a long day, and we come home, and our friends or our family members are the ones who end up taking uh, or receiving our frustration, our short temper, our harsh or critical words. And so James says, listen, be patient, in the midst of suffering, don't sin with your speech. Don't grumble. Don't complain so that you're not judged. And here he talks about the judge standing right at the door. Previous to this, the return of Christ is meant to be an encouragement. You can, you can, you can endure. Be patient. Christ is near. Here it's a warning. The judge is at the door. Examine your heart. Guard yourself. Don't sin with your speech. And he closes with two examples of patience. He talks about the prophets in verse number 10 and Job in verse number 11. The prophets, he says, speak in the name of the Lord and they're an example of suffering and patience. When you read the Old Testament, you see the prophets faithfully speaking the word of God and and suffering, being persecuted, being opposed because of their faithfulness. And there are many verses in scripture that undercut the prosperity gospel, this being one of them, the prophets are faithful to speak in the name of the Lord and they suffer and they're opposed, not in spite of their faithfulness to God, but because of their faithfulness to God. Because they faithfully speak the word of God, they experience opposition and persecution. And yet they're faithful, they don't stop speaking the name of the Lord, they resign to be faithful to endure suffering in the name of the Lord. And then the second example he gives is Job, We know the story of Job, and he says, Job endured. Job wasn't perfect. Job complains, but Job endured. He refused to curse God and die. And at the end, at the end of Job's life, the Lord was kind to Job, and and James points to that. You've seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. And for me, there is a world of comfort and encouragement in that last phrase. The Lord is full of compassion and merciful, this is the Lord who's returning to vindicate his people. The Lord who's compassionate, who's merciful, who loves his people, who provides for them. This is a picture that we receive of God in his character, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. When God describes his character in Exodus 34, when Moses says, I want to see you, God hides him in the rock, passes by and says, the Lord, the Lord God who's gracious, and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. This is the character of the God who's going to come back and rescue his people. And because he's kind, because he's good, because he will save us, we can wait. We can endure faithfully. Brothers and sisters, wait patiently for the Lord. He is compassionate and merciful. He's demonstrated his love for us, taking our sin, dying in our place, coming back to life, ascending to heaven, interceding and promising to return, be patient. The second command is to speak honestly. He returns to speech again in verse number 12. He says, but above all my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. One of the most challenging components of this particular section is trying to figure out how verse 12 fits into everything else that goes around it. As I was reading and studying for this sermon, Martin Debellius read his commentary, and he was helpful here. He said, This section does not hold together as a unit, for 5.12 stands in the middle as a totally isolated saying, and 5.7-11 and 5.13-20 through have no relation in thought either to this saying or to one another." So he really helped me clear things up there, right? He says, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't connect to what goes before it, what goes after it. Those don't connect to each other. But I think he's overstating his case. James has already showed us that one inappropriate response to difficulty is grumbling and complaining. Here, he warns against taking oaths. And I think he's getting it at rash speech, saying things you don't mean and making promises that ultimately you might not keep. And another link between the previous section and this section is judgment in verse 9, connected to grumbling. If you grumble, there's judgment. If you take an oath and don't let your yes be yes and your no be no, you're in danger of judgment. So I do think there's a connection between the two. Now, why they would take an oath, I'm not sure. Some argue that the oaths are connected to violence, that, that these... Christians are tempted to take violent oaths and to retaliate towards the rich, similar to the oaths taken by the Jews to kill Paul in Acts 23. Others argue the oaths are related to the poor trying to hold back their creditors or to purchase food, so they're making oaths to secure uh, necessities for themselves. I'm not sure that, that it's possible to reconstruct the historical background, but the meaning of what he's saying, I think, is clear. Christians should be people, these believers should be people who speak the truth that it's not necessary for them to make oaths or make vows. Jesus says something similar in a Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 34 through 37. He says, don't make an oath, don't swear by heaven, don't swear by earth, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. And the reality is this, that oaths and promises and vows are only necessary in a culture where dishonesty is prevalent. Helmut Tealick, said this, he said, whenever I utter the formula I swear by God, I am really saying Now I'm going to mark off an area of absolute truth and put walls around it to cut it off from the muddy floods of untruthfulness and irresponsibility that ordinarily overruns my speech. In fact, I'm saying even more than this, I'm saying that people are expecting me to lie from the start. And just because they are counting on my lying, I have to bring up these big guns of oaths and words of honor. Those things should be unnecessary for believers. People should know that when we speak We mean what we say that we're telling the truth that our yes is yes and our no is no. And again, there's a warning so that we don't fall underneath judgment. And this is a needed reminder for us because we do live in a world of distrust and dishonesty, fake news, misinformation, deception. It's legitimately difficult to know who to trust and what to believe. But my desire, my prayer is that that wouldn't be true of me and that it would not be true of those of us who claim the name of Christ. That we would be people who speak the truth, that our yes is yes and that our no is no. And so I would also argue that we live in a dishonest culture, but that provides an opportunity for Christians to actually be Christians, to live as Christians that we're those who speak the truth, that, that we can be trusted, that our words carry the weight of honesty and integrity that we tell the truth. And one of the reasons this is so important, I will just say this, is because controlled speech is evidence of a changed heart. Controlled speech is evidence of a changed heart. And if I'm not controlling my tongue, then it's an indication that my heart is not right. Jesus says this in Luke 6, 45. He says, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. And the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. So Jesus draws a connection between the heart and the mouth. As my grandpa used to say, what's in the well comes up in the bucket. That's how he would say that. That your speech is evidence of of a distorted or a sinful heart. And so we're called to to speak truthfully, to speak honestly. James talks so much about the tongue because the tongue reveals our heart. And I would also just like to remind you that this command, like the rest of the commands of Scripture, is only possible, it can only be obeyed by those who have had their hearts transformed by the gospel. Apart from Jesus and the transforming work of the Spirit, we lack the desire and the ability to consistently obey the commands of Scripture. But Jesus who lived a sinless life, who died a sacrificial death, who rose from the grave victoriously, gives his people life. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. We have a new nature new desires, new strength. We possess the spirit. We have the power and the ability to obey the commands of God. And so honest speech is evidence, not, not the cause of new life, but it's evident that we have new life and our heart has been transformed by the gospel and so I would say, brothers and sisters, in a world of deception and lies and dishonesty and mistrust, let's be truth-tellers, let's speak honestly and with integrity. So James says, when, when others oppose you, when you're abused, be patient in a world where lies abound, speak the truth. Then he talks about various circumstances and says, when you face all kinds of things in life, Make sure that you pray. He talks about praying intensely. 13 through 18 is is dominated by the theme of prayer. Prayer is mentioned in every single verse in this section. And so it's, it's natural at the end of letters in the New Testament for them to end with an exhortation of prayer. And James does that here. He begins in 13 by saying, look at verse 13, "'Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray.'" The NIV translates the question, is anyone among you in trouble? I think he's talking about a broad range of circumstances. Are you going through difficulty? Or are you going through trouble? The response should be to pray. And so prayer should not be a last resort. It's a first response. We should be people who pray. And we will face trouble in life. I've already said this. Maybe some of you are struggling right now. You're struggling in class. You've got a paper due, readings piling up. Work is hard, it's a challenge. Maybe you and your wife are arguing. I know we're at a seminary, so maybe, maybe you never argue with your wife, you're so spiritually mature. My dad used to say that he and my mom never got into arguments, they just had intense fellowship. So uh, maybe you're too spiritual to argue with, with your wife, maybe that's not your difficulty, but maybe, maybe you're tired, maybe it's your children. Life is tough. James says, listen, if you're suffering, if you're in trouble, Whatever it is, whatever you're facing, whatever you're dealing with, take those things to the Lord in prayer. Then on the opposite side of that, he says, is anyone among you happy? Let him sing songs of praise. And so this is a reminder on the opposite extreme, when things go go poorly, mature Christians typically will take those concerns to God. But there is a temptation, a tendency when things go well to forget to be grateful, to forget to express gratitude, to take for granted the things that God has given us. But James reminds us in chapter one that every good and perfect gift comes from where? It comes from from the Father above in whom is no variation or shadow of turning, right? Our good gifts come from the immutable God and so we should express gratitude to this God. And so if you're here in chapel this morning, just wanna remind you that the Lord has been good to you. Don't forget the kindness of God in saving you and calling you in gifting you, and placing you here to serve or to study, the Lord has been kind to us. Let's be grateful, people. Don't take the Lord's kindness for granted. And so in short, what James is doing in verse 13 is he's directing our attention to God no matter what our circumstances are. Whatever our circumstances in life, good or bad, we should go to God. Calvin said that James means that there is no time, I love this phrase, there is no time in which God does not invite us to himself, God is always inviting us to himself. When life is tough, God invites us to himself. When life is good, God invites us to himself. When we're sick and suffering, God invites us to himself. That's what he says in verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Then you must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven of him. I know many of you have just been waiting for me to get to this section of the text. James talks about calling for the elders, anointing a sick person with oil. I think there are certain parts of this text that are fairly clear. Uh, The person uh, who is calling for help is seriously ill. He can't go to the elders. He requests that they be brought to him. I I think this is also supported by the fact that the elders are are called to pray over the person, indicating they're immobile in a seriously ill condition. But James says that the elders are called for, call for the elders, the leaders of the church, and to have them pray over them, and then the participle, anointing them with oil. And the big question is why? Why why does he anoint them with oil? Now, various answers have been proposed. They can be condensed into three, I think, broad categories. The first view is medicinal. The second view is sacramental. And the third view is symbolic. Uh, The first view, the medicinal view, what I have labeled the essential oils view, uh, is that... uh, Oil is used to heal this person. It's actually a medicine, um, and I've seen a lot of ladies on Facebook who I think would agree with this. Let me just uh, throw that out there. Essential oils can be used for everything, apparently. If you have a headache, put some peppermint on, on your neck and behind your ear. You know, uh, If you're stressed, rub some thieves on the bottom of your foot, uh, break your arm, sprinkle some Siberian fur on it, you know, and if you're an essential oils person and I've offended you, it's going to be okay. Go home and drink some lavender. Life is good, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> But, but some would argue here that, that this oil is medicinal. Now, there is an example of oil in the New Testament being used medicinally. The Good Samaritan pours oil on a wound. But uh, here it's talking about anointing. Anointing, the particular word that he uses here for anoint, is not used in conjunction with oil to designate healing anywhere else in Scripture. Uh, on top of that, if this is simply a medicinal use, why call for the elders? Can't somebody else put the oil on the sick person? And so I don't think that's uh, the the correct view. The second view is a sacramental view, views the oil as imparting some type of, of grace or, or special healing. Uh, the traditional Catholic, Catholic sacrament of extreme unction is probably the most prominent uh, of the sacramental views, and there the oil is meant to cleanse spiritually the sick person and prepare them for death. Now, there are several reasons that doesn't line up with what James is saying here. Now, first, uh, the elders are called to anoint this person with oil not a priest second imminent death is not in view on the contrary James expects the person to be raised by the Lord and third the view undermines the emphasis of the text which is physical healing not spiritual healing when he talks about sin being forgiven it's a conditional statement the emphasis is on physical sickness not the forgiveness of sins and so uh, don't think that's the the proper view. Obviously, I'm Baptist, so I'm going to stay away from the sacramental view here. So I I would argue the third view, the symbolic view, which views the anointing as symbolic, is probably the correct view. I'm not dogmatic about this, but in the Old Testament, people were often anointed with oil to signify uh, the spirit or to designate that person as separated and consecrated for God. And I think the oil is likely designating this person, setting them aside for a special work of healing by God, because James goes on to say that the Lord is the one who will raise this person up. He uses the prayer of faith in verse 16. The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. And again, there's a comment, if he's committed sins, they will be forgiven of him. And so there are times, he's not saying that every sickness is connected to sin, but there are times where sickness and physical sickness is connected to sin. And so he says, if there's sin here, the sins will be forgiven. Then then he goes on to say, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, covering the full spectrum, confess your sins, pray for one another so that your sins may be forgiven so that you may be healed. And then he says this, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And again, this is another encouraging word, a reminder that prayer is powerful, prayer is effective. God works through prayer. And so he says prayer is effective and he gives us an example of powerful prayer. He says, Elijah, in verse 17, was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the earth for three days and six months. So, so he points to Elijah, a prophet in the Old Testament. And, and Elijah, he says, is a man with a nature like ours. He doesn't prop Elijah up as a superhero. As is a super saint, he presents him as a man with a nature like us, and yet God responds to Elijah's prayer. The, the, the rains, the heavens are shut up, it doesn't rain for three and a half years, but then he prays again, the sky pours forth rain and produces fruit, the earth produces fruit, and so he's pointing to Elijah as an example of a man of prayer, a man who prays, a man who accomplishes things for God because of his prayer, and again, the prayer for, for the heavens to be shut up and the prayer for the heavens to be open. In between there is his showdown with, with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament, Elijah goes to Baal's territory. He's not playing at home. He goes away. Baal has home field advantage. The prophets pray all day. Nothing happens. Elijah starts mocking them. I love that part of the Old Testament. Where's your God? Maybe he's taking a nap. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's going to the bathroom. I mean, nothing is better than trash talk in sports. Uh, I, I lo- love love... Stories of trash talk. My favorite of all time, this is just a side note. I'll come back to this. A side note, my favorite of all time is Mike Tyson was getting ready to box Lennox Lewis. And in in an interview, they asked him what his objective was. And his answer was this. My objective is to be professional, but also to kill him. And uh, I thought that's fitting for a man who has a face tattoo and bit someone's ear off, right? Uh, but, but that's what Elijah is doing. He's taunting these prophets and then he calls, he prays and God sends fire down from heaven, consumes the altar and the sacrifice. Elijah is a man of faith and prayer and God answers prayer. And so James is calling us to be people of prayer no matter what we're going through in the good times, in the bad times, sickness, sin, suffering, you and I should take our concerns to God. Daniel Dorani said, through prayer, we hallow every pleasure and we sanctify every pain. Let's be people of prayer. And then finally and quickly, we see the need to to restore others graciously. He says in 19, "'My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth "'and one turns him back, "'let him know that he who turns the sinner "'from the error of his way "'will save his soul from death "'and will cover a multitude of sins.'" And so here he talks about a believer who's wandering. He says, "'My brethren, if one of you,' "'indicating this person is truly a believer.'" And this person strays from the truth. We know from the rest of James's letter that the truth is not merely doctrinal. This is is not merely a doctrinal error. This is not denial of some essential truth. This is also practical. This deals with life. James connects faith and works, belief and action. He says, this person begins to stray from the truth. They begin to wander from the path of righteousness. They begin to live an ungodly life. James says, those who are believers, have a responsibility to turn them back. If one turns them back, he says, let him know that the one who turns the sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And I would also say here that maybe you are wandering. And if so, examine your heart, confess your sin. But if you're not wandering, you have a responsibility to help those who may be wandering, particularly in the context of a local church, but in your family, in your life. If you see who, someone who's struggling, say something. Step in, help them. And when we do that and they respond, the rewards, the privileges are, are glorious. He says the the sinner's soul is saved from death and their sins are covered, their sins are forgiven. And so... It's important for us to recognize the responsibility that we have to other believers when we see them struggling. Step in, say something. Hey, I've noticed this in your life and I'm not sure if it's true or not, but this is what it seems like. Can we, can we talk about this? Hey, I've noticed this. It seems to be a pattern. Can we meet sometime and discuss? Step in. We have a responsibility to step in when we see people who are, who are struggling. And if we fail to do that, the, the converse of verse 20 is that the person who continues on that path, the path leads to death. There is no forgiveness of sins. There's danger and destruction and punishment for the person who refuses to turn from the error of his ways. And so James closes with a host of commands encouraging believers to be faithful in difficult times. And when you're opposed by others, be patient, let the Lord vindicate you. Don't grumble and complain, but endure. Resign to endure patiently. When others lie and truth-telling is rare, speak honestly. When you're suffering and sick with sin, pray intensely. When other people are wandering, tempted to abandon the truth, step in and restore them graciously. Jesus is calling Christians to be faithful. He's calling us to be active. He's calling us to endure in difficult times. One of the sporting events that tests a person's endurance more than any other pushes them to the limit is the Ironman triathlon. A normal triathlon is bad enough. Uh, You swim 0.93 miles, bike 24.8 miles, and run 6.2 miles. But an Ironman triathlon is even worse. You have to swim 2.4 miles, bike 112 miles, and run 26.22 miles. I'm tired just reading that. Right, when I Googled how long an Ironman triathlon was, uh, a, a video uh, popped up in the Google results, and the title was, Are You Ironman Ready? And it was nine minutes. I was like, I don't need a nine-minute video to tell me I'm not ready to run an Ironman, right? Uh, but, but clearly, that event is meant to test a per- person's endurance. Only a person who prepares will be able to endure. It takes the average person 24 weeks to prepare for an iron man. Only those who prepare for the event can push through, endure the fatigue, and finish well. And so I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, to be men and women who prepare to finish well, who resolve to endure faithfully because Christ is going to return. He will reward his people, and we will enjoy him forever. And because of Christ, we can finish faithfully. We want to leave you with these words from Jesus himself, words of encouragement. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Let me pray. God, thank you this morning for the opportunity to be here and to to study your word together. Pray that we would take this passage to heart, that we would seek to be faithful no matter what we're dealing with in the good times and the bad times, that we would rely on you, that we would look to you, that we would love you, that we would serve you. God, give us strength, strength strengthen our faith, Help us to be obedient. Pray that all that we say, think, and do would honor you. We thank you for Jesus, who is kind, who's compassionate, who's full of grace and mercy, who's redeemed us from the curse of the law, given us life, granted us his spirit. Help us to live lives of obedience because of what he's done. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.